This is Nate. Did you want a different mic? Oh, so this is your mic. Are you right, on? This one right here? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you guys are. Am I on? <laughs> All right. All right, great. I'll get out your way. Awesome, guys. This is always such a special church for me because I was born here. It's not, not in the building, of course. But my parents were here in the 70s, and my dad was working in Idorado Mine. And I was actually born very prematurely. I wasn't supposed to live. Baby boys in, in that era, when they were born prematurely, they had lung defects, a lot of them. And now there's uh, just, a, I guess, something that they can spray down their throats, and they're fine. But then they didn't have that. And a lot of people in this church prayed me through that. Um, and this, this is home, if that makes sense. Uh, we then ended up on the mission field for many years as a family, and every year, pretty much, this church would send a team to encourage us and to come over there and do ministry in Romania in particular. And when I came back before going off to college, I came and spent a summer and fall here and got to paint with Chuck Perry in there and painted the outside and the inside. And just I remember one time where I was sleeping downstairs in the apartment with some uh, other guys and people were trying to break in. And uh, so we were like, we are going to guard this place. You are not breaking into this church. <laughs> but anyway, it's always such a privilege to come back here, especially with Aaron, my wife, and our kids. We just realized that uh, last time we were here, our two girls were babies, and Micah hadn't even been born yet. And so uh, I'm embarrassed that it's been that long, but it's really, really special. And we were at Night Vision this weekend helping out there. And uh, I had told Keetrick, we just want to visit you guys. It's been so long. And I said, does this date work? I mean, we're in Montrose right next to you. And, and he said, it actually works great. So I'm, I'm very, very, very glad to be here with you all today. And I do want to encourage you from God's word. And I want to leave you with a few practical things that I hope are going to help you in all that God has called you to here in Telluride. Because I don't think it's an accident that you're here. I think it's a part of God's strategy and a part of God's plan. So we're going to leave you with some of that today as well. So you will need paper and a pen. Okay? So if you don't have paper and a pen, get it. Or you could use, you could use some kind of electronic device to take notes. Or to do what I'm going to help you with too. I'm going to grab something that I'm going to show you. We're also going to give you, um, unless you already have one, you guys don't get one because you won one at night vision. Amen. So you, you don't we get... We were blessed. We were very thankful for that. <laughs> then he's like, my mom wins something everywhere she goes. <laughs> so anyway, we gave away a few of these at the event and, well, she won one. All right, uh, before we end, I'm going to give all of you a copy of this. It's a workbook that our team has put together on apologetics. And a lot of people, when they hear that word, some people don't even know what it means. And other people are kind of like, whoa, that's for like the really, uh, the really smart people. And uh, we've, look how thin this is. Isn't that crazy? Super. We've, we've actually whittled about 20 pages off this. And so we've, we've tried to make it concise, easy to remember. And it's a tool that I believe will equip you for more than 95% of all the skeptical conversations you could ever have. Um, so if somebody's like, how can you believe in God? Blah, blah, blah. You'll have some solid answers that you could share respectfully. This is not a tool that you want to just clobber people with. That's not what it's for. This is to give good answers to honest questions. And there are people out there that just have honest questions. And uh, 1 Peter 3.15 tells us to be able to give them good answers, right? And so hopefully this will equip you to be able to do that. I'll tell you more about this in a minute, and I'll, I'll hand out a few copies of that in a minute. But uh, first I'm going to tell you just a little bit about who we are. I don't want that to be all we talk about. I want to get into God's Word together and kind of uh, hear what God's Word has to tell us this morning too. But for many years, Aaron and I were a part of Master Plan Ministries. Most of you are familiar with that name. And Master Plan Ministries is predominantly a college ministry. It works with college students. When we joined the ministry 14 years ago, we said our long-term vision is not college students. We love college students. We want to keep reaching college students. But we have a passion for the church. We want to see the church resourced and equipped to be able to do all God has called them to do. Uh, we don't want to build our own church or start our own church. That's not our, our vision. 
Our vision is to, to come alongside churches everywhere and assist them, encourage them, support them, resource them, mobilize them for Great Commission ministry. And so uh, about a year ago, it was a good time where, where the ministry that we had been a part of was able to really um, decide that their future was college ministry and that we were complementary to that, but that we could do best under a different banner, under the Great Commission Alliance. We'd actually used this name all the way back to 2009 and different things, and so it wasn't like a new thing. But it was uh, exciting to, to have the freedom to pursue this ambitiously. And so over the last year, we stepped into the GCA with a small staff team. Your son is on our staff team. We have right now 11 staff, which is just mind-boggling to me. It, I mean, literally, it is mind-boggling to me. God has been very good to us. And uh, a, a young couple just joined uh, about three or four days ago that we love very much. It was very special to have them join the team. But the, the mission of the Great Commission Alliance is multiplying Christ-like multipliers. We believe that spiritual multiplication is uh, what, what we hear in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. It's what we saw Paul modeling with Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, 2. And that is the key. We believe that that's the key. If I just disciple one guy this year and teach that guy to do the same, and then next year we both do the same, and the next year we both do the same, the whole world would be reached in our lifetimes. It's amazing. But a lot of times we get, we get stuck on, on a whole lot of different things, and we don't get to that discipleship focus that, that we were commanded by the Lord to do. So multiplying Christ-like multipliers is our mission. And the vision that drives us as a team is the Great Commission Completed. I think a lot of times we think about the Great Commission, and it almost seems conceptual, right? Um, multiplying disciples in every ethnic group on the planet. How could that happen, right? It almost seems like, like uh, fiction, right? Or something that, that, that none of us will ever get to see. Well, as a team, we've uh, embraced that and, and determined that we want to be alive when, when that happens. We want to see that happen. We are not so arrogant to think that it's on us or that we could accomplish that on our own. But we believe that the Lord gave that to his church with the intention of doing that through his church. And, and so we want to join him in what he's doing. And that is something that we're all passionate about. Uh, of course, that's a big thing. So we have six key things that we do as a team. Uh, number one, we're committed to intercession and prayer. Uh, we're growing in that. We're not where we want to be. Probably everybody thinks that about prayer, right? I, I, there's never been a time in my life where I thought I'm, I'm there yet with prayer, right? And so um, that's uh, something that we realize the importance of and we're growing into. But also, there is a prayer team all around us. Several of you in this room uh, pray for us. Uh, there are about 500 people that pray for us uh, on, a, on a regular basis, and we could not do what we do without that prayer support. Uh, next is guidance. So recently, we've been coming alongside a lot of churches and doing strategic plans for the churches where we help them come up with uh, a very a defined strategy for reaching their community for Christ. And it's exhilarating to come alongside a church that maybe has gotten, um, just been stuck in the routine of ministry for a long time, and to come alongside them, encourage them, and help them recapture the vision for their community. Uh, another thing that we're committed to is that next generation ministry piece, the college students and younger high school. If we don't reach them, we're not going to reach the world. We have to reach the next generation. So a lot of us have done that on our team uh, full-time for many years, and now we're helping other churches do it. Uh, one of the biggest churches in Albuquerque just asked our team to disciple all their college students. Uh, this is exciting. So we see our, our role as coming alongside the church and helping them do a, a, a better job at reaching those next generation um, people, right? Next is international partnerships. God has opened up doors to work with uh, the Assemblies of God in India, uh, Foursquare in Africa, YWAM in South America, and uh, various other organizations around the world. And uh, those guys are doing great work where they're at. And we get to come alongside and partner with them. Uh, it, it's just, I feel so blessed, it's ridiculous. Uh, this fall, we were asked to come in and, and teach all of the Foursquare pastors in East Africa on evangelism. It's like, I mean, as a team, we just think, are you kidding me? This is too good to be true. But uh, it's part of the strategy that God has called us to. Uh, next is tools. 
We're committed to developing tools like this so that Christians have the resources they need for the ministry God's given them. A lot of times there are great books on great topics, and those need to be written. That's all very important. But sometimes just a simple tool is lacking. So as a team, we want to give people just hands-on tools that they can that they can use in their own personal ministry. The last thing is equipping, and that's training. We love training people in Great Commission types of ministry. How do you share your faith? How do you make disciples? How do you defend your faith when, when that comes up? Lord willing, we'll be in uh, Sweden and in Scandinavia early part of next year. A lot of the Christians there uh, don't Every time they turn around, they get hit with uh, skepticism. Probably a lot like Telluride. This kind of tool becomes important in those contexts. And again, it's not to bash people, but it's to resource them. And so when we go there, uh, a big focus of the training is going to be apologetics. How can you answer those questions when they come up? How How can you help your skeptical friends really find Jesus? And I know that there's more to Jesus than, than apologetics and the answers. I know that he has worked in my life and he's worked in your life in a personal way that no argument could ever match. And at the same time, there are people out there that haven't had that experience. And sometimes they have good questions and they're not willing to take a step of faith towards Jesus until somebody helps them through those questions. But sometimes as you help them through those questions, they get to that point where they're willing to, to step into a walk with Jesus. We had an atheist friend several years ago that he lied to me that he was a Christian and um, wanted to just hear what are some of the answers, but he thought if he came out as an atheist, I would be combative or something like that. So he just said he was a Christian. But what about this and what about that? And uh, he ended up becoming a Christian. We, we didn't even find this out until like two years later when he was getting ready to go to seminary a pastor and he shared his testimony on his seminary application and then showed it to us and and he said that he came to Christ in our ministry and all this stuff like that it was a big surprise but he was a good example of somebody that just had some questions and he just needed somebody to give him some solid answers right okay so we love training people in that resourcing them in that and all that that's enough about us if you want any more about us uh, you can, you can, I'm sure, talk to Ketrick or Suella. Uh, I, I know that you guys at the church get our newsletter. If you want to pray for us, you could, I have some note cards. You could leave your info. I would love it if you prayed for us. Um, as a team, we're getting to um, take steps of faith that are just maybe different than we've ever had to trust God with in the past. And I feel like we're dependent on uh, a team of prayer warriors behind us. About, a, about six weeks ago, we were asked on 48 hours notice to go to Zambia and train over 600 pastors on 48 hours notice. And I was supposed to be in uh, Myanmar at that time, so I couldn't go. And uh, one of our staff guys on 48 hours notice, uh, had, he had to pray through the night. He didn't want to go the night before. Um, understandably, he was pretty wiped out. But as he prayed about it through the night, God changed his heart and he woke up and said, I'm going. But um, I'll tell you what, as a team, we felt very vulnerable, and we felt very much like we were stepping into something that was way over our heads. And uh, so we, we, we covet your prayers. <laughs> we need you to be praying for us. That's how we feel. So that's a, a little bit about the Great Commission Alliance. And as, I, and as I share with you, I just want you to know how thankful I am, because you guys have stood what you, This church has supported us since our first month in ministry, and um, we're just so thankful for you guys. Um, we're so thankful, and you're, you're a vital part of what God's doing. Today I wanted to read from God's Word and, and study God's Word a little bit on a topic that relates to all this, and, and it's God's heart for the lost and our, and our role in His plan with the lost. So we're going to be looking at 2 Peter 3.9, just one verse, okay? And you'll need, you can take notes, but you're going to need that paper for something I'm going to train you in. Okay, it's going to come up in our application. And I'm going to give you a tool for sharing your faith that you could use anytime, anywhere with anyone. And that's where you're really going to have to use that, that pen and paper. Okay? Suella, how long do I have? How long do you need? All right. Get you out by dinner. I promise. <laughs> All right. So we're going to look at 2 Peter 3.9. 
And I think that sometimes when we look around society, you might feel this way. You might feel like, uh, am I the only one that's interested in Jesus? You ever feel like that? I mean, I know there are more out there, but are we the only ones? Today, somebody at the hotel in Montrose, uh, one of the PHM guys, he says, are you, are you guys heading out? We said, yeah, we got to get out early. Where to? Telluride. Are you speaking at a church there? I said, yeah. He's like, are there Christians in Telluride? <laughs> I said, there are. He was joking. He knows there are. But have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt like that? Are there Christians in Telluride? <laughs> are there Christians in our community? Like, is this world completely lost? Um, or, or God, why aren't you doing something about how lost this world is? Right? Why, why isn't... Why isn't more happening? If you've ever thought questions like that, this will be a, a good message for you, I think. And this will be really good to get into to Scripture and see what God's saying. So 2 Peter 3.9. Let me just tell you first, Peter, of course, is, is writing to a lot of Jewish Christians that are being persecuted. And at this particular time, the Roman Empire was a really bad place to be for Christians. Have you ever seen uh, the movie Paul the Apostle? It just came out last fall. Uh, you'll see some of the types of things that were happening to Christians uh, in this time period. They were being turned into human candles. They were being fed to lions, things like that. It was not good. So whatever we've experienced, I'm sure that these people were experiencing more. <laughs> they surely had every reason to think this society is, is crazy. They, they've lost it, right? Where is God in all this? Where is God in this society? And they probably were asking God, why are you tolerating this? What's going on? Okay. So in this context, we, we read uh, what Peter has to tell them. We'll, we'll look at some of the background to this, starting uh, in verse 3 of, of 2 Peter 3. And we'll go through 8. We're going to stick with 9 for the day, but let's just look at the background here. First of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming he promised. Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water. This is really interesting, even just from an apologetical sense. It's saying people know that God is really real, that he really did create this, but they deliberately forget it. Okay? They deliberate. And this is true. In fact, there are some some major philosophers that have fancy terms for this. Alvin Plantinga, who recently retired, is uh, one of the most brilliant philosophers of our time. And he says, belief in God is a properly basic belief. <laughs> That's what he, in other words, in, until you get screwed up in your thinking, <laughs> if you just have correct thinking, I'm oversimplifying his argument, but if you just correctly think about the universe, you will correctly believe that God exists. Uh, to get out of that, you have to like, you have to tweak things around, and that makes sense because we know that you don't get something from nothing, and we know that all this had to come from something greater than all this. Uh, those are there are philosophical arguments for God's existence that are watertight, irrefutable, and if you can't refute them, it stands as a fact that God exists. And I think a lot of people know that. I think a lot of people intuitively know that. There was an atheist once on the college campus that I'd been talking to about God, sharing lots of the evidence with him. And uh, he came back, this is maybe a couple years after we've been talking, came back from a Christmas break and he said, I believe God exists. I said, awesome, what happened? Well, I was at a party and I, I went outside to smoke a cigarette, okay? And then what? I looked up at the sky. And then what? No, that's it. I just looked up at the sky. Okay, well, what happened? No, I just looked up at the sky. And it hit me. God exists. That's correct thinking. And I think a lot of people know God exists, but they deliberately forget it. Right? And it's usually not... I've seen a lot of people that have walked away from their faith. Never once has it been because of evolution or because of an argument. They might use those things. It always had to do with a choice. I want to be God over my own destiny. I want to do my own stuff. I, I don't want to, to obey what God tells me. I want to do my thing, right? And a lot of times arguments then, they deliberately forget. They, they choose not to believe because of what they want to do. Okay, he continues on. And he says, 
um, by these, in verse 6, by these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. Um, I'm not going to focus too much on that passage, but apologists would tell you, and this is really cool, he's, he, that, that's crystal clear uh, description of general relativity right there. General relativity says that depending on your place in the universe and depending on your relationship to the speed of light, you'll experience time differently. Isn't that interesting? Uh, and, and Peter's quoting Psalm 90 here, where it says it gives three different perspectives. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, like a watch in the night that has just gone by. Uh, you see these little scientific things popping up in Scripture that there is absolutely no way someone got on accident. And Peter even goes into it in two verses later, and he talks about almost a textbook definition for radioactive decay. It's, it's mind-boggling, guys. <laughs> It's mind-boggling. I'm not here to talk about all that today, but I can't help myself a little bit. We see God's fingerprints all over this, right? We see things that could not be here if it wasn't for him writing it and authoring it. But right here we see next uh, verse 9, and this is kind of where I want to camp out. It says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance, right? This is his heart, would, is that none would perish, that everyone would come to repentance, that everyone would find him. That's what he desires. And he's not slow, he's patient, right? He's patient with us. Side note, what we heard earlier today, whatever your struggles are, he's patient with us. It's, it's not his, his anger that, that drives me to repentance. It's his kindness that drives me to repentance, right? Uh, because he's patient with me and good to me and kind to me, I come to him, right? So I want, I want to talk about three different things that I think come right out of this one verse here. First, God is unfazed by the world and its patterns. When we look out there, it's easy for us to go, oh my gosh, am I all alone? Is everybody else crazy? I don't think I'm the crazy one. Do you ever feel that way? Well, God is not, he is, he is not phased by this. He is unfazed by everything going on in this world. Uh, there's nothing that's happened in the last 20 years that surprised him. <laughs> I promise you. There's nothing where God went, oh, I didn't think it would come to this. <laughs> He's seen it all. He's seen all of our evil hearts for millennia. Nothing has caught him by surprise. Uh, we're, we're sinners alive today just like we were right back to Adam and Eve. Nothing has phased him. So he is unfazed by the world and its patterns. doesn't catch him off guard. Uh, number two, he is unwilling that the lost would perish. Right? He's unfazed by what's going on out there, and he's unwilling that any of the people that we see walking by us every day would perish. His heart is that they would be saved. And finally, he's undeterred from his wonderful plan. And this is what gets me excited. God didn't get shocked by what's been happening, freak out, and go, what in the world should we do? <laughs> He's like, no, this doesn't, this does not surprise me. My heart is still the same for these people. And my plan for, for you believers is still the same. <laughs> I've still called you to be a light in this dark world. I've still called you to reach out to your community, right? So all those things are, are still the case. So first, God is unfazed by the world and its patterns. Uh, some of us are, are shocked and shell-shocked even by things that happen in life, whether it's in our own personal lives or in our friends' lives. We hear of cancers and strokes. We hear of car crashes. We hear all these different things, and it shocks us, right? Or maybe it's financial issues. Who knows what it might be? But sometimes it's life's surprises that, that shell shock us and leave us absolutely not knowing what just happened. Uh, probably the most shell shocked I've ever felt in my life I haven't had a lot of death in my family. Uh, I've been very fortunate. My mom and dad are alive. Um, my grandmother died when I was very, very young, and her husband and my grandfather, when I was first born, I never knew him. On my other side, I have my grandparents still. They're very old, but I haven't. So I haven't had a whole lot of experience of death. But my uncle died shortly after our wedding. He'd come out to our wedding, and he'd been there, and he'd heard the gospel. He hadn't yet trusted Christ. 
just a few months later, he died of a heart attack, kind of out of the blue. And I just remember feeling shell-shocked. It was like the whole world was kind of like a blur. Like, did that really just happen? I'm sure a lot of you have felt that. My wife lost her mom as a teenager. Um, maybe it's something like that where you are just absolutely taken by surprise. Uh, but it could be something else too. Maybe a relationship breakdown. Uh, maybe a financial catastrophe. A sickness. Who knows what. Right? Also, it's society's trends. Sometimes those just shell shock us. I can't believe that just happened. Uh, that, that happened to us over the last decade in college ministry. We worked with college students and it's almost like the switch in our society happens so fast and I, I just, I couldn't even believe it. I mean, they, they don't think like they thought three years ago. They don't act like they acted three years ago. I mean, there was such an abrupt shift and it really caught us by surprise. And probably a lot of people got caught by surprise too. So whatever it is, sometimes we encounter those kinds of absolutely shell-shocking phenomena in life, right? Well, thank God, God is unfazed by it. God is not caught by surprise. And that's something that's reassuring to me. No matter what I go through, I can trust him in it. He has not been caught by surprise. But here we are in the midst of it, and we're called to be lights. We're called to work in this, in this world for him, to, to shine brightly for him. Spurgeon was asked, how in the world are we supposed to do ministry when society is so dark and people are so out of their minds? Okay, uh, You know what? It sounds prophetic, right? <laughs> that back then they were talking like that? You see, what we're going through is nothing new. The people 100 years ago felt the exact same way we feel about our society, right? And here's what Spurgeon said. He said, what have you and I to do with the times except to serve our God in them? Isn't that good? God didn't put us here to try and analyze what's going on in society. I mean, we should be thoughtful and creative and all that. But he put us here to serve God in our times, right? To point to him. Uh, 2 Timothy 3 kind of parallels 2 Peter 3. It says, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. Does that not pretty much accurately describe the society that we live in? I, sometimes I read that and I go, you've got to be kidding me. And there are a lot of very clear prophecies in Scripture. Like the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. He's going to be pierced for our transgressions. I mean, some very clear ones that they rip his robe, pull out his beard. I mean, many different things. There, The date, the actual year that Jesus died for us was prophesied several hundred years before it happened in Daniel 8. Did you know that? It's unbelievable. Okay, so there are very clear prophecies. When I, when I read something like this, I'm like, that's just as clear as any other prophecy I've ever read. I mean, that is us today. No doubt about it, right? That is us today. God knew this day was coming. Not, not a surprise to him, right? Not a surprise to him. Uh, we look around our society and we see hedonism. We, we read about this here. Everything is about pleasure, right? Everything is about experiencing what I want to experience, how I want to experience it, when I want to experience it. Total hedonism. And it's even to a point that it destroys the person doing it and the people that they do it with. It really hurts people, right? The things oftentimes that I love hurt other people, right? And, that's, and our society is committed to these things. God's not surprised by it. Skepticism, right? Skeptical of everything. A lot of people are even skeptical of truth, right? Which is absolute absurdity. We used to do this on campus for fun. Do you believe in absolute truth? No. Do you believe that's true? Absolutely. <laughs> and, and they would catch it. They'd be like, oh. Uh, it's one of these things where if you believe that truth does not exist, you just believe that there is at least one truth, that truth doesn't exist. And if that's true, then your whole statement is false. Does that make sense? Yeah. Uh, even atheistic philosophers will tell you the idea that truth doesn't exist is crazy. <laughs> It doesn't make any sense. It's logic. It's what it's uh, what philosophers would call autophagic. The statement eats itself up. It's like saying I can't speak 
a sentence in English. Well, this, you just spoke a sentence in English. Does that make sense? Yep. It eats itself up. Okay, but our society is full of skepticism. I want to read another statement from somebody over 100 years ago that sounds prophetic about our society. He says, The new rebel is a skeptic, and he will not entirely trust anything. The modern revolutionist doubts not only the institution he denounces, but the doctrine by which he denounces it. In short, the modern revolutionist, being an infinite skeptic, is always engaged in undermining his own minds. By rebelling against everything, he has lost his right to rebel against anything. Isn't that good? That's from G.K. Chesterton in his book Orthodoxy, a masterpiece, over 100 years ago, but exactly what we see in our society society today, right? Absolute skepticism, which in the end destroys itself. We also see uh, what philosophers might call scientism. That's not being scientific, but that's revering science as a faith almost. You see the, the Darwin fish eating the Christian fish. That's a perfect example of scientism, right? Uh, science tells us everything we need to know. My degree in college was chemistry. I love science, but it surely doesn't tell us everything we need to know. It doesn't tell me if my wife loves me. It doesn't tell me if uh, rape and murder are bad. It doesn't tell me if love is good. It doesn't tell me if abortion is wrong. It doesn't tell me who should be president. There's a whole lot of good that science does, but it surely doesn't tell me all there is to know about truth. Uh, but it can lead me in the right direction. I'm not, I'm not dissing science. But a lot of people have come to this crazy perspective that the only thing we can know about the universe is the natural facts of the universe. And that's just not true. And in fact, science itself could never support that. Right? The science could never prove that there's nothing more than a natural world because it only has access to a natural world. Does that make sense? You could, never, you could never devise a scientific experiment to disprove the supernatural. It's impossible. Okay, so scientism, though, is, is, a, is a philosophical belief that there's nothing more than the natural universe, and it's unsupportable. Uh, we have pluralism, which is prevalent. Whatever you believe, that's fine, right? Except maybe Hitler wasn't fine, right? Or maybe some other... But, but whatever you believe is fine. Our, our, our whole worldview is going back to ancient myth. This is fascinating. We read a book by John Oswald, who's Old Testament professor at Asbury Theological Seminary. And he wrote a book called The Bible Among the Myths. And he says, if you look at the history of myth and all of human history and, and what epitomized myth, here's what he says. We, we find these, these things defining myth. The ascription of personality to nature. The mountain is an is a individual, the deer has a soul, things like that. Uh, nature is more important than a transcendent creator. So it's a preoccupation with nature rather than the creator. Uh, there's a cyclical view of reality in myth. It's not a, a historical trend, but it's just a cyclical pattern. That leads to a disregard for history. All the ancient pharaohs, whenever a new one would come on, they'd try to erase all the old guys and, and rewrite history in their own terms, right? That's, that's a perfect example of myth. History is irrelevant. What matters is my power over the environment today, which I'm going to try to achieve by rewriting it my own way. Uh, that creates also a, a disconnect from space. It creates a mystical view of events, right? Uh, maybe in myth they would, they would try to look at... Uh, chicken livers to see whether they're going to win a battle, right? There is an incredible mystical view of, of events and things like that. Uh, and it was all for the purpose of trying to control and manipulate whatever powers there might be. I'm going to try and do X, Y, and Z to get some kind of celestial response, right? All these things are coming to epitomize our culture today. He also talks about a preoccupation with sex in relation to that control over nature, and he says, look, guys, whenever you reject the true word of God, you go right back to myth. You go right back to myth. I don't care about history. I'm going to rewrite it the way I want. Revisionist history. I, I'm, not, I'm not interested in what's really happening. I'm not interested in what's really true. I'm interested in whatever makes me feel good today. Right? All these things start to epitomize our society. And what I'm, what I'm wanting to encourage you with today is there's nothing new under the sun. 
It's just sinful human beings being sinful, except now they have iPhones, <laughs> right? Now they have airplanes. Maybe we're a little bit different than we were several thousand years ago in our technology, in our appearance, but we're sinners just like we've always been with the same general ways of thinking about the universe. And God is unfazed by it. And it's time for us as believers to be unfazed by it, to not go, oh my gosh, I, I'm, I'm all alone. I need a cower in the corner. Uh, Jesus says, let your light shine. Don't hide it, right? Uh, nothing out there is catching him by surprise. And I can follow him as Lord. And so here's the next thing that we can learn is God's not willing that any would perish. He's not. He, d- he didn't get to 2018 and go, well, okay, now I'm okay with everybody just going to hell. <laughs> That's not his heart. His heart for our friends, our coworkers, our neighbors is the same as his heart has been for people of all time. He desires that they would be in relationship with him. He desires that they would know him. Uh, I was in India last fall, and we, we were in some places where some people had never heard the name of Jesus. I called Aaron, and I was crying on the phone. It just, it, I could not believe some people had never even heard of Jesus, right? But guys, the people that we rub shoulders with are no less lost, and they're no less loved. They are dearly loved, and God is not willing that any would perish. That's what he says right here in this passage. Almost the same thing comes up in 1 Timothy 2. He says, I urge then, uh, Paul says this to Timothy, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. He wants everyone around us to be saved. He wants everyone around us to come to the knowledge of him. I know my heart is not in line with his heart when I, when I don't share his heart for the lost. Did you catch that? Mm-hmm. Um, when I have a calloused or an, in, an indifferent perspective about the people around me, um, I don't want anyone to walk away feeling judged by this because I'm right in the same boat with you. But for me, it's a red flag that I'm, I'm just not on, on the same page with the Lord. He, he loves the people around me. Um, and if I, if I don't have that passion that they would find him like he has, I need to go to him and ask him to give me that, that passion. One place that we were at in, in, uh, in India was the epicenter of the 2009 persecution. It had been heavily persecuted. A lot of people had been martyred. And we were teaching about 100 people how to share their faith. And uh, in this room, the guy that I was there with, he's worked there for the past decade, and he told me, Nate, there's not one person in this room that didn't have a friend martyred for Christ. In fact, the place that we were teaching, the whole place had been surrounded by thousands of Hindu radicals that wanted to kill everybody in this church slash orphanage. It was an orphanage and church and uh, an Assembly of God church. And they wanted to kill everybody there. They surrounded the place. They were yelling. They were chanting. Everybody was on the rooftop of the building. I interviewed the people that were there about the experience. And they're all just praying, God save us. They could hear screams of people in the distance that were running and being killed and harmed by, by uh, these radicals. It was a very, very, very sit- serious situation. And God saved them, obviously, because we got to talk to them almost 10 years later. But what happened was the leader of the riot, it turns out, had been uh, in school with the pastor of the church. And even though one was a Hindu and one was a Christian, the leader of the riot uh, he came upon the, the riot late, so the riot was kind of out of control doing its own thing. He catches up with him, and when he realizes it, that it's his old friend from school, he says, hey, let's go on to the next place. <laughs> and uh, they just went on to the next place, and the whole group was saved. Uh, guys, we had to talk in that building to those people about how to have compassion for their friends to share the gospel with them. I felt like, oh my gosh, we're teaching them to love the people that killed their friends so that they could share Christ with these people. And uh, I, I kid you not, I, I was getting ready to speak, and there was a video going. I, I, I broke down behind the podium and cried like I've never cried in my entire life. And uh, I think God knew it was going to happen because there was a whole stack of towels underneath. <laughs> so I was wiping my eyes. But just the idea, 
and they, they, they were right there. We want to love these people. We want to love these people. We want to share Christ with these people. These people are smiling. Um, if they can love the people that killed their friends and love them enough to share Christ with them, I can love anybody, right? I can love anybody no matter where they're at compared to me on the social spectrum, right? I can love anybody wherever they might be on the, on the spectrum of our culture. I can love them enough to befriend them, to share Christ with them. Okay, and Jesus had this compassion. Remember in Matthew nine thirty six, it says that he had compassion on them because they are like sheep without a shepherd, Right? And then he said, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. I know the temptation is to go, man, everything out there is so crazy. What what are we supposed to do? Well, the problem isn't with the harvest. It's with the lack of harvesters. And if we share Christ's perspective of compassion, he'll open up opportunities. If we're willing, he'll he'll open up opportunities all around us to reach out and share. Uh, Again, he's the one that gave us uh, the Great Commission, right? Uh, and this is his wonderful plan. That's the last thing I wanted to share from this passage before I make you do some homework here. Uh, he's undeterred from his wonderful plan. The Great Commission is a great plan. <laughs> it's not an accident. I mean, you couldn't conceive of a better idea of making disciples that would make disciples that would make disciples. I mean, every great marketing scheme of history kind of robbed from this, <laughs> right? It, it, this is the ultimate plan of multiplying and reaching the world uh, it parallels, obviously, the biological command in the beginning of Genesis, but in a spiritual sense, we can multiply throughout the world and reach the whole world. Uh, this is a great plan, and God is undeterred from it. God didn't get to 2018 and go, oh, we have to come up with plan B. Jesus is still the only answer, <laughs> right? Jesus and the world still needs to hear the good news of salvation, forgiveness, in Jesus. The plan hasn't changed. God's undeterred from it. Right? He's unfazed by what's going on in society. He's unwilling that any would perish. And he's undeterred from his plan. Right? And you know what? This is really cool. You guys are the plan. God didn't put the Apostle Paul here today. He put you here today. Isn't that cool? I mean, I don't know why he put me here today. I think other people... When Billy Graham died, I thought, oh my gosh, we lost such a great leader. Well, you know what? Not for today. If God wanted Billy Graham here today, he'd still be here today, (laughs) right? He put you here today. He put me here today. Um, He's he's in charge of the plan, but we're strategically put here as a part of his plan. He says that in Acts 17. Aaron and I have stood right where Paul preached in Athens, and uh, it's such a cool spot. If you read Acts 17, it says Paul walks into Athens, right? He's grieved because the city's given over to idols. He's preaching in the temple. He's preaching in the market. When you go there, and then it says some guys take him, they bring him up to the area of Pegasus. Uh, when you go there, it's just like that. The main city that came into the old, or the main road that came into the old city, uh, it had all the religious area off to the right, and it had the temple off to the left. It's exactly what you see in scripture. You see it right there. Just getting off track a little bit, but apologetically, that happens over and over and over and over. Luke wrote Acts in all the statements like that that he's ever made geographical statements, words that were used. In all of archaeological history, no one has ever proved Luke wrong in a single instance. Anywhere he could be tested, he's always been proven right. And this is just one more example of it. Paul walks in, he's grieved. He doesn't look at the idols and go, stupid Athenians. (laughs) He's grieved. And he instantly starts trying to find a way to reach out to them. Right? He finds this idol to the unknown God and he he, he realized this is a great bridge to this culture that I can share. And he goes up, and today you can do it. You can walk right from that street up, up around. It's right below the Parthenon. And you think who in their right mind would go sit on this big, huge granite rock in the middle of the Mediterranean sun? Like, you're, you're just going to bake up there. But then you get up there, and it's just, there's wind blowing on you. It's like air conditioning. Like, that would have been a great spot to sit in the middle of the summer. And these guys would go and just argue, and Paul goes up there and shares the gospel with them. Right? Amazing story that we can learn a lot from. But he also says this. He says, From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. The times and the places that we live 
are not an accident to God. <laughs> he put us here for this time so that people around us would find him. As closed as those people might look. They're, they're no more closed than the people in Athens were, I promise you that. They're no more closed than the, than the Hindu radicals that persecuted the area that we visited last November. The people around us are closed. I, I give it to you, right? Especially in Telluride. All right, you got a lot of people that are probably pretty happy with their investments in their home, and they probably like Oprah and everything she says about spirituality. I heard she's got a lot going on here, right? Uh, So there are probably a lot of people that maybe if you talk to them and say, hey, are you interested in coming to church with me to read the Bible on Sunday? They might say, not at all. Uh, Don't take that as evidence that God doesn't want you to impact them. Because I promise you, if Paul said that to the people in Athens, they probably would have said the same thing, right? Or these Hindus in India would probably say the same thing. Uh, But still, God gives us an opportunity to reach out to these people. It's a privilege, guys. And you know what? He doesn't leave you alone. This is where it gets exciting. In Acts 1.8, he called his disciples to, to be his witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And then he says what? That he's going to give them his Holy Spirit to empower them. Right? So we're not alone. <laughs> we're not alone. This is really cool. When we talk to people, the Holy Spirit's in you talking to people. He's in you working through you. He's, he's working on their heart. And we can, we can walk by faith trusting him. Uh, we, can do, we can trust that he's going to speak through us and trust he's going to work in people. So you should not take away from what I'm saying that you just need to try harder. That would be a horrible thing to take away. Just grind it out a little bit better with your neighbor. You know, Just try harder to get your neighbor to church on Sunday. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying follow the Holy Spirit's lead and trust him to use you in every area that he's sovereignly placed you, right? Let, let it be available. God, I'm available. I remember once I walked into Walmart late at night. We got off campus late and we had the kids. Aaron had to go get something. I have all the kids. And uh, I felt like God said, go share with that lady. <laughs> she had tattoos all over her arms and everything. And I thought, right now? I have no interest in walking up to this lady and starting a conversation with her, right? You remember this night. And so I I finally just said, God, I'm willing. I'm not going to promise you anything. I'll start walking in her direction. That's that's about all I can promise. And (laughs) you have to do something because my heart's not in it. I'm not there, but I'll... So I start walking. And the first thing that comes out of my mouth is, And you know what? She's like, yeah, check it out. There's scripture verses all over. Cool. Uh, and I, she was a believer. I, I think God was working on my heart that night. Like, get, just get out of your comfort zone, Nate. Trust me. Be willing. Be available. Just let me work through you. Um, you guys, I'm surely not there yet. I can promise you that. Just like anyone here, I get scared to share my faith. I've, I've shared my faith for like 35 years now, since I was five years old, and I'm still scared. Sometimes we train people in this, and they go, when do you stop being scared to share your faith? Probably never. That's okay. I used to snowboard a whole lot in Telluride, and uh, there were a lot of things that scared me in the park, and um, Christmas tree shoot, I think it was called. You guys ever ride that little, anyway, little run I used to like a lot, but there are a lot of things that uh, used to scare me, but they were exhilarating, too, at the same time. Uh, asking Aaron to marry me scared me, but I'm glad I did. <laughs> so, uh, you guys, uh, just, I'm saying, this is his plan. It's his heart. Let's, let's partner with him in, in what he's doing. Okay, so here's where you get to write some stuff down. Are you ready? Here's the homework. Don't do this just to do this, okay? First, draw near to the Lord. He'll draw near to you, right? Uh, Out of the treasure of your heart, your mouth should speak. (laughs) So don't just talk about Jesus because you have to. Let Jesus become your treasure, and you won't be able to stop talking about him, right? (laughs) So so get the first things first here. Uh, John 15, abide in him, and and he'll produce fruit through you. But don't just try to churn out the fruit without abiding, okay? So I'm I'm saying do all that stuff. I'm trusting that that that's your heart. Now that you're doing that, here is a simple tool that you could use to share your faith with anyone, anytime, anywhere. And you don't even need a tool like this, okay? It's called the one-minute witness. We didn't come up with it. Oasis World Ministries came up with it, and it's awesome. 
There are tens of millions of people that have come to Christ through this little tool. And currently, Christians are using this tool in about 50 countries. It's very exciting. But it's so simple. It goes like this. Walk up to somebody and say, hey, can I ask you a question? Can I ask you a question? Can all, can all of you say that? Even to a stranger? I bet you could, right? Maybe somebody in the store here in line to check out at Clark's. They changed the name. It used to be Roses, right? Mm-hmm. I, walked, I drove by today. I'm like, that's, that's not right. <laughs> but anyway, you could be in line and you could say, um, can I ask you a question? And probably the person's going to say, sure. And uh, you just say, real simply, what's the greatest thing that's ever happened to you? And usually people go, that's a, that's a big question. That's a real big question. <laughs> okay? I don't know what... I don't know. It's okay. Maybe you don't have the greatest thing. Just something great. What's something great that's happened to you? And then listen to them. A lot of times people don't get to talk and not very often do they have somebody listening. So just listen to them. If they say it was getting married, oh, that's wonderful. Tell me about it. What happened? What was that like? Having kids. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I, I love my kids. They're the, get snow. It's snowboarding and Telluride. I love snowboarding and Telluride. It's a great place. Does that make sense? Connect with them a little bit. Hear them out. Establish some rapport. Look them in the eyes and show them that you actually care about what's important to them. And if they want to talk five minutes, listen for five minutes. If they want to talk 15, listen for 15. Just show them that you really do care about their story. And when they, when they wrap it up, you can ask them a real simple question. You can just say, well, thanks for sharing a little bit about your story. Can I tell you in about a minute or two the greatest thing that's ever happened to me? It's a little bit of a risk. They could say no. They could say, were you trying to trick me? You're going to respect them. You're not going to take their whole day. If they say no, you respect it and you let them go. But a lot of them are going to say yes, okay? And here's what you do. You tell them your one-minute testimony. It's so simple. You start with three words that describe your life before Christ, okay? So here's what I'm going to ask you to write this out. What three words describe you before Christ? And maybe if you grew up in a Christian family, it might be something like, what three words describe who you are apart from Christ? Right? I came to Christ at about the age of five, but I know without a doubt fear, sadness, and doubt were big issues in my life before Christ. And those really were. Uh, one of those, doubt, persisted for decades after that time. God used it to grow me in my faith and to help others grow in their faith. But those three things are my words, fear, sadness, and doubt. I would encourage you when you write these words down, uh, keep going to God with them because maybe they'll change over time. Be sensitive in how you word them. I used to say fear, depression, and doubt, but I realize a lot of people deal with depression, and I don't want to come across as like judgy with them, you know what I mean? So I changed it to sadness. Uh, so maybe you'll write three things down and then you'll have to change it. Uh, don't use Christian words either here, <laughs> right? Don't say, like, uh, I was unholy. (laughs) They might be like, I'm done with this conversation right now. (laughs) Use things that people could relate to, right? I was insecure. I was worried about what people thought about me. Um, I felt hopeless. A lot of people feel hopeless. Um, Think of some words that that maybe would be real. Don't don't lie. Get get something that's that's true about you but that may be somebody to relate to, okay? All right, anybody want to tell me a word or two that they put down? What is it? Uh, I have a question real quick. What's the doubt about? Okay, for me, what was mine? Yeah. Okay, so I, you know, um, I do a radio show on <coughs> apologetics, and I did a show several years ago called My Top 10 Doubts, and uh, it was one of the like most listened to things I ever put online. I think people want to know that question. Uh, for me, the biggest doubt I ever have is probably death. Um, I, I don't have very much trouble believing Jesus rose from the dead, especially because the historical evidence for it is irrefutable. But it is like, it's just so hard for me to wrap my, wrap my mind around me rising from the dead. Okay, so death was a big one. The fact that the evidence for Christ's resurrection is strong is really reassuring to me. Uh, that just, I, I can bank on him. And I, I finally got to the point where I just said Jesus. Um, I can't do calculus very well. Uh, I had to retake it a few times. I can't do physics very well. I had to retake it a few times. Um, there's a whole lot I can't wrap my mind around. Okay, So it's it, just me not being able to wrap my mind around something doesn't mean it's not true. It just means I can't wrap my, 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 my mind around it. But you beat death.
So I'm trusting you that you'll do that for me. And I just decided I'm not even going there now. I just won't. So sometimes that thought will come in my head, you know, about death. And I literally am like, I've, I've resolved that I've trusted Jesus with that. The evidence for his resurrection is compelling. It's irrefutable. So I'm not even going there. It's a done issue. Does that make sense? So that was a big one. The deity of Christ was a big one. Because when I was 10, some Jehovah's Witnesses uh, in, in, in Antigua, Guatemala, in the city square, they whispered in my ear, Jesus isn't God. And that just stuck as a 10-year-old. Uh, I was in Antigua last fall, and I got to go to the exact place it happened. I recognized it the second I saw it. So that was it right there. Um, there are several others, too. But, but uh, I know that God's given answers for all those. And whatever your doubts are, I promise you, they're good answers for them. And sometimes we freak out and think, and we just, I remember one that just drove me nuts for like two or three years was two gospels say there was one angel at the, at the tomb. Two say there were two. And I was like, well, is it two or is it one? That <laughs> 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 almost hyperventilate. And then I heard somebody talking once and they said, well, whenever there's two, there's always one. It's not a real contradiction. <laughs> and I was like, well, that makes sense. So maybe in one passage they were highlighting one that spoke or maybe one that was uh, the, the prominent voice or something like that. Or maybe it was two different trips, and in the text there were two different trips. Um, and then I, I went, uh, it's just like if I say, yesterday I hung out with George. I tell that to you guys. And then I say over here, yesterday I hung out with George and Chris. Right? Nobody would say like, oh, you lied to us. What a contradiction. I'm telling you. Two different parts of the story, okay? So those are some of my doubts. Anybody have a word or two from uh, their, their background before Christ? Angry. Angry. Perfect word. A lot of people deal with anger. Anybody else? Anxiety. Anxiety. Yeah. Is that you? Yep. Yeah. I mean, the anxiety in our society is astronomical right now, right? Anybody else? Wrongful persecution. Wrong, okay, what's that? Wrongful Persecution. So you were you were like persecuting others, basically. Is that right? Or being or um, okay. What else, guys? Shame. Shame. Yeah, living in shame. Okay. Here's the next thing. I'm keeping it short. You can work on this. I'm just giving you some rails to run on. So take this back to the Lord. Pray. Ask Him to help you refine it. Sharpen it up to a minute or two. Practice it on swell and next week on key traits. And, uh, and, and rush up on this. It's a good tool. Next is how did you come to know Jesus? Okay. I would include some major points of the gospel there, like God's love, man's sin, Jesus' provision, and our decision, right? Um, those are important. But, but be, be uh, careful to share the, the correct situation, right? Who's at a church or who's here? The place that I made a decision to trust Christ was the, the parent church of this church. Because after my parents left Telluride, we were in San Marcos. And I, I remember, I don't remember what date it was, but I remember it very clearly. I remember we were upstairs in one of the children's church-type places. And I remember it very clearly. Okay. Any of you remember when you first said yes to Jesus? Do you remember? <laughs> um, could you tell somebody that? This, this is your story. No, nobody's going to say that's not that's not a that's not an important thing. I was 29. 29. I was in Ohio. Mm. Uh, yeah, it was uh, March. March. Yeah. Awesome. Okay, mm. so you could share that with someone, and again, I would include maybe some detail and maybe some the gospel. Because right. maybe after this, you never talk to them again. You'd love for them to walk away with an understanding of the gospel. No, I don't do that. Perfect. So I'm going to share my one minute with you before I finish, but I'll just coach you through the last part here. Uh, the last one is what three words describe your life after Christ? And it's good to make them kind of antonyms of the first three. Does that make sense? So for me, I said fear, sadness, and doubt. So I'm going to say boldness, joy, and confidence. Does that make sense? I want them, I don't want to make things up. If you have no joy, you don't want to enjoy it, right? But you want to put something that's going to show them what Jesus has really done in your life. Because it's true. He's changed you, right? I was sharing the gospel uh, on the beach in uh, San Clemente or somewhere with uh, another guy about a year and a half ago. And we're sharing. This guy's like, no, man, no, man. I'm not interested. 
work for you? <laughs> and I was caught off guard. I'm like, uh, uh, yeah. He looks at the guy and with, he's like, what about you? Did it work for you? <laughs> he's like, yeah. This guy's like, I mean, I'm not kidding you. He's like, did it really work? We're like, yes, it really worked. He's like, man, I could use some life change right now. <laughs> and uh, I gave him a little track with my number on it because he was running to a surf lesson he was teaching. And um, anyway, I got a phone call off that track six or eight months later from a different person. It was really bizarre. That's never happened to me before. But the world wants to know, did Jesus really change you? Really? Or are you just like the televangelists? <laughs> I want my money. Right? Did he really work in your life? Okay, so let's tell him that he really worked in our life. Okay, dear sister. Tell me something good Jesus has done in your life. Um, he guided me to raise my kids on my own. Wow. So that's a lot of single moms out there, right? Yes. It's pretty common. And my children are also witnessing now. Wow. Uh, they're married and um, they're. I, it's an enjoyment to see them do that with my grandchildren. So it's awesome. Awesome. Okay, so think of your three words. If you need more time to do this back home, you can take it. Uh, but here's kind of uh, the last thing that you should write down. Simply summarize in one sentence what Jesus has done in your life, but don't just repeat what you just said. So something like, if it hadn't been for Jesus, I'd be truly lost. But because of him, I'm experiencing life to its fullest. Something really simple, just a sentence that helps them kind of like wrap it up, and then just ask this question. Would you be interested in knowing how Jesus could do something like that for you? So simple. And just listen, okay? So mine goes like this. There was a time in my life when fear and sadness and doubt were really epitomized who I was. And even though I was in a Christian family, some things that were happening in our home made those feelings very real to me. And uh, even though I'd been to church many times, I'd never really understood the, the message of the Bible until one day when it finally clicked, I realized that God really loved me, okay? I also realized that I was a sinner, and even though I was a young boy, I knew that was true. I heard that day that Jesus came to this earth and he died on the cross to take my punishment so that I would never have to be punished by God, and that by believing in him, I could be forgiven, and that I could be guaranteed eternal life. And I remember that day saying yes to Jesus and putting my faith and my trust in him, and I'm, I'm not making this up. He really changed me. My fear, he really changed to boldness. My sadness, he changed to joy. That doesn't mean I'm always happy, but it means that whatever I'm going through, I have a confidence and a joy that nobody can take from me. And he, he replaced my doubt with confidence. I know that he's as real as the air I breathe. If it hadn't been for Jesus, I'd be very, very lost. But because of him, I really feel like I'm living life to the fullest. Would you be interested in knowing how Jesus could do something like that for you? Isn't that so simple? Don't you want everyone you know to hear that short little statement? Wouldn't that be amazing? Remember John 4, the woman at the well sharing her testimony and all of Sychar coming and believing in Jesus, or most of Sychar? Amazing stuff. So I just gave you a really simple tool. Don't just use this to, to do more good stuff. But go to Jesus. Draw near to him. Uh, let him be your greatest treasure. And then look for opportunities to take a small step of faith. Walk up to somebody. Hey, can I ask you a question? Sure. What's the greatest thing that ever happened to you? Get to know them. And then ask if you could share with them the greatest thing that's ever happened to them. And then just share your one-minute witness. This, this is what Jesus did in my life. Would you be interested in knowing how Jesus could do that in your life? And I'm, I'm betting there are a lot of people right here in this town of Telluride that are going to want what you have. Once on, on the college campus, Brandon, one of our staff guys, when uh, he was a student, you guys know Brandon, um, he did his testimony in front, of, in front of a big group, and this guy comes up to me afterwards, uh, Faithen, I've never heard that name before, and he goes, I have to have what that guy has. I have to have it. I have to have what I saw in him tonight. <laughs> I bet there are a lot of people like that that are going to have that same perspective. I've got to have what you have. I've got to have what you have. All right, so guys, as we, as we wrap this all up, um, I just want to remind you that... Um, God is unfazed by what's going on out there, right? He's still unwilling that any would perish. And uh, he's still undeterred from his plan, and his plan is you. And uh, he's put you here to be a light, and people need to see your light. And this is a joy. It's a privilege. It's an exciting part of the Christian life. It's adventurous. The abundant life involves letting people know where we're at, right, and sharing with them. 
This is exciting. Real lives get changed. About a week and a half ago, Aaron and I checked into a hotel at 11 o'clock at night. We hadn't eaten since three. We were hungry. And uh, we're like, all right, we'll share the gospel with this guy. We share the gospel with the guy, and he goes, I've been thinking about converting. I've been thinking about converting to Christianity. And we're like, well, what's stopping you? And so he had some questions. We talked about it. He goes, I, I want to talk more about this. I want to talk more about this. So we have his info and all that. Man, that was exciting. Whatever was going on in our lives, that brought joy to it. That brought adventure to it. That brought meaning. And it can do the same for each of you as you step out into this beautiful city and share the good news of Jesus with your friends and workers and neighbors and all those different people that you cross paths with. I'm going to pray for you, okay? Uh, believe me, my heart, Keetrick and Sue, is, ugh, I, every time I think you guys, I'm like, go get Telluride. <laughs> this is not an easy place to minister. I, I know that. I've done it here, and uh, I know it can feel alone, but uh, you guys are the, the tip of the spear here. It's important what you're doing here. And uh, we love you, and, and I just want to pray that God would use you in great ways, okay? Dear Jesus, I thank you for this incredible church that's been such a blessing to me, and I am just honored to be here in this place, God. And uh, I know that it is no accident that you've uh, put this church here, and its best days are not behind it. God, this city is not beyond reach. God, I know that you desire that everyone here would know you and that they'd come to trust you. God, I pray that you'd give uh, this, this beautiful congregation your heart for the people that they see. I know you already have. I know that they already share with them. But God, I pray that you'd use them in just incredible ways. God, I pray that you'd use them to, to reach people that they never imagined would be reached, God. God, I know that, that you are the only true hope in this dark world, and so I pray that you'd use this church to shine brightly in this community. And uh, Jesus, we love you, and it's in your precious name we pray. Amen.